Welcome to Christ Church Conway's podcast. We hope that the resources you find here are used by the Spirit to strengthen you in your faith through the study of Scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, I invite you now to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. The plan is to look at the first 13 verses of Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. So I'm going to read all of that. And it's an interesting little passage that, that's uh, Paul kind of just should give us some, some context because the wording is kind of weird. Paul re- starts to revisit his prayer for the Ephesians that he had been talking about in chapter 1, but then as soon as he gets started revisiting that prayer, he wanders off on another tangent and then comes back to the prayer again in verse 14, which we'll look at next week. So that's why if you read it and you're like, what is going on here? That's part of why it feels a little bit uh, discombobulated. So let's give our attention to God's holy and inspired word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mission was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Fathers, we come once again to your word. I ask that you would strengthen me by your spirit, that I may preach in his power, that all of us as your people might be strengthened through the proclamation of your word. That our eyes might yet once again be set on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we might remember the certainty of our hope. That we have been included. That we have been welcomed in. That we are no longer strangers and aliens, but heirs members of the body, partakers of the promise. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Well, as I said just a second ago, this is kind of a, a weird little passage because uh, for one, Paul starts this prayer and then he interrupts himself and picks it back up again in verse 14. And so, so there's that kind of, of oddness. But, but in doing that, we see that he is in fact a prisoner uh, and, and he's writing this letter and Uh, He's a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and he's concerned that that struggle in his life might be such a discouragement to the Ephesians that they lose hope. And so he writes to remind them not to do that. 
not to lose hope because of what he is facing. And it, it, it seems like what happens here is he starts to introduce this prayer and he talks about being a prisoner and then he's like, okay, wait a minute, hold on. Let me stop and remind you that that's not a reason to lose hope. And, and this is an important point for us to understand. And, and I tried to walk through it with the kids and, and for y'all with the kids, but, but this is a really important point. Because e- even though we would rightly confess that our standing before God, that our justification is based on the finished work of Christ, that that's what speaks the truest word about us. I think everybody here would rightly confess that. We would say yes to that. But I also think that everybody here struggles when we face the realities of the difficulties of this life. When we're faced with suffering, when we're faced with death, when we're faced with sin, when when we're faced with all kinds of things, it's very easy for us to to go, okay, wait a minute. This is not how I thought all of this was going to work out. Because even though we would deny any kind of, you know, name it, claim it, you know, gospel like that, and even though we, we would deny the prosperity gospel and, and say, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach believe in Jesus and then your life is a bed of roses. The Bible teaches believe in Jesus and suffering will come. Even though we would fully affirm that, we're so immersed in this cultural Christianity that tends to think life in Christ is blessed forever that when things don't go right, we start to doubt. We start to struggle. We start to wonder, has he forgotten me? Does he still love me? When we see people like Paul struggle with life, it's easy for us to think, well, if that can happen to him who is so faithful and who has so utterly given his life to the Lord, then is God powerful enough to protect anyone? Does he care enough to protect anyone? And so Paul understands, it seems, that reality that we live with. And so he he interrupts himself to remind them, as we see at the end, don't lose heart because of what I'm suffering. This, me being in prison, me being, being you know, forced to suffer because of the gospel? No, that doesn't undo the truth of God's word. And we need to remember that. We need to hear that again and again and again. Because even though we would not proclaim any kind of prosperity gospel, We also know in the depths and the darkness of our own minds and hearts that when suffering comes, we start to wonder and we start to question. And Paul writes this to the Ephesians to say, no, no, no. That's not how this works at all. What Christ has done, the mystery of the gospel that he's about to to talk to us about, that is what we listen to. Yes, as we sang earlier, the fears will come and they will annoy us. But the gospel is what we go back to. 
the truth of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law, died in our place, in the place of sinners, and rose again in victory. That is what we stand on. And so he dives into that reality. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, it was given to me for you how the mystery was made known to me by revelations I've written briefly. And, and, and Paul was kind of always under attack about his apostleship. So in a lot of his letters, you find statements like this where he's reminding people, this isn't something I came up with. This isn't my gospel or man's gospel, to use the, the Galatians language. This is God's gospel. I didn't get this because somebody convinced me of it. I got this because God revealed it to me. That's why I have this message. And so he reminds the Ephesians of that, and he tells them, I've written of this previously. We don't know exactly if he's talking about what he's already written in this letter or other letters that he has written. But he lets them know when you read what I'm writing here, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And then he tells us the first thing that we need to understand about this mystery. Verse 5. It was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. He's not saying that this gospel, and this is a very important point for, for Presbyterian theology, for, for anyone who, who takes the covenant series. He's not saying that the gospel is new. He's saying that it hasn't been revealed previously like it has now. In other words, he's laying out what we call the doctrine of progressive revelation, that as the story unfolded from epoch to epoch, from book to book, from scene to scene, as God worked in history, more and more became clear. So we start with this curse in the garden and, and, and this kind of weird, vague promise that if we didn't have the rest of the story, we, we probably would just pass right over that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. We're like, okay, that's a little bit of a weird thing to say. But then when you see the story unfold, and by the time you get to the book of Revelation, and here's the seed of the woman destroying Satan himself, you're like, oh, now I see what's going on there. When you get to the, the story of Abraham, and, and he says, I, I, I'm making this promise to you, and, and I'm going to give to you and to your seed this land. You're like, okay, so this is a Jewish thing. But then you kind of, well, there, there's promises for non-Jews involved here, because it's going to be a blessing all night, but how is this going to work? And then you get to Jesus, and, and he fulfills the law, and then Paul explains he has made the promises of, of Abraham for everyone. It, it unfolds, and you start to see like, oh. And then you read the book of Hebrews, that connects everything for you. And it's just this fantastic biblical theology. And you're like, oh, Jesus is the better Moses. He's the better temple. He's the better mediator of a better covenant. And you're like, oh, this is what's going on. So it's not when Paul says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, it has now, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's not saying that the gospel is some utterly new thing that is kind of this new plan or this new thing that God is doing. No, he's saying that, that the story has continued to unfold. And he has continued to make known exactly what it is that he is doing. 
And what existed in types and shadows in the Old Testament is now being shown in reality in the New through the apostles as they announce the finished work of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment and security of all that God has promised. So we see a fuller picture as we come into the New Testament. And then he tells us what this mystery is in verse 6. It is that the Gentiles, Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. He tells us three things about the Gentiles here. And here's why this is such a mystery. And, and here's where if we wanted to, we could just completely nerd out on all kinds of ancient Near Eastern and, and, and first century Hellenistic kind of worldview stuff. But I'll, I'll try to be brief with it. Basically, the way people tended to think was that everybody kind of had their own gods. So if you were here, you worshiped the Temple of Artemis. If you were over here, maybe you worshiped Bel or in this community, Moloch or, or whatever. And, and, and gods were thought of as, as more or less regional. And so the Hebrew God, Yahweh, well, was the Hebrew God. He was the God in Israel. And, and you see this over and over and again. And I, you know, I'm going to go here eventually on almost every sermon in David and Goliath where there, there's this battle with the Philistines, right? And, and it's, a, it's a religious battle. It's a religious war. The Philistines are cursing David by his God or their God, and David's like, no, that's not how this is going to work. In fact, I'm going to destroy you, and it's going to be known that there is a God in Israel and that he's the God of everything. It was this proclamation that, like, no, 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 there's one God, and all these other gods that are worshipped are false. And so that's why this is so mysterious. On the one hand, it's mysterious because when you look at the Old Testament, you look at the promises to Abraham, and then you look at the Mosaic Covenant, and, and you look at all of these things, it seems very Israel-centric. They had the tabernacle. Their life, they're the people whose life was, was arranged around the tabernacle with, with the, the, the presence of God in the middle. They're the ones that had the temple. They were the ones who could be priests. Not the Gentiles. Now, if the Gentiles were told in the Old Testament, if they wanted to celebrate the Passover, they and their family could be circumcised and brought in. And I mean, there was a way, but, but it was really a, a very Israel-centric reality. And so the mystery on the one hand is that it's actually not an Israel-centric reality. It's actually something that was for the whole world. It was for all the nations. And there are these hints about that, like we read earlier in Isaiah 2, that people from all over, from all these nations will come in. And the coming in will be so fantastic and, and so overwhelming and so reorganizing that they won't even study war anymore. Can you even imagine that? I mean, we, we live in, in a particular moment in history where one nation, our nation, attempting to get out of a war has sparked another war in that same nation. Can you imagine the effect of the gospel when it's reaching so far that nations are beating their swords and, and their implements of destruction and, and war and, and, and their weapons, they're beating them into plowshares and, and pruning hooks and things that give life instead of take life. That nations won't 
take up sword against each other anymore. Because we'll all be included in what God is doing through the gospel. See, the mystery is phenomenal. Because on the one hand, it lets us know, like, hey, this isn't just a Jewish thing. This isn't just an Israel thing. This is a whole world thing. This is something where where God had a plan from before the foundations of the earth to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. This is a plan that from the very beginning was a plan for the nations. And this is a plan... That's also mysterious because it reminds us that all these local deities that they might have gone and worshipped actually held no authority over them. They actually had no right to say, no, 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 no. Those are my people, Yahweh. I don't know who you think you are, but you don't get them. No, see, the gospel, as we're going to see in just a minute, declares to the spiritual authorities exactly who is in charge, exactly who we read earlier in Ephesians has been set on the throne above all things, exactly whose feet all things are under. See, the mystery is phenomenal. What what has been revealed, and and that's the mystery, is that that more is being revealed is this inclusion of Gentiles. And he tells us these three things. They're fellow heirs. Some of y'all, several families in in our church have adopted children. And for a few of you, I've gotten to go to the adoption uh, proceedings when the judge says, like, you're part of this family now. And it's always amazing, if you've never seen kind of what happens, it's really an incredible thing. Because the judge has the parents sit up on the stand and ask them this series of questions that basically boil down to this. If we let these children be adopted into your family, they are so thoroughly in your family that nothing that would rightly go to a biological child can be withheld from them, their fellow heirs. And they get specific about stuff like inheritance and wills. They're like, you don't get to write them out. If they're in, they're in. And it's just this amazing statement. And Paul's saying, that's how we are as Gentiles. As he said earlier, that that God, he wanted us for himself, and so he adopted us. And so we're fellow heirs. He's not going to write us out. It's not going to happen. We're his children, heirs of the kingdom of God, heirs together with Christ, just like the rest of Israel. We Gentiles get what they get. The second thing he says is that we're members of the same body. We're not this separate group over here. There's not like, oh, well, you know, these are the the good ones, and and then, like, these are the other ones, right? Like, no, that's not the picture at all. And Paul uses different metaphors. In Romans, he talks about there was a cultivated olive tree, and then the wild olive tree has been grafted into it so that it's one tree now. Here, he's using this body metaphor saying, no, y'all are part of the same body. It's not two different peoples of God. 
They're not Jews that God loves and then Gentiles that he tolerates or something like that. No, there's one body. And you're part of that body. This is the unity that Paul is driving at all through the book of Ephesians. And then the third thing he says is that we're partakers of the promise. Now, promise is, is an interesting biblical idea. And if I were to ask you, what are the promises of the gospel? You would probably, and, and rightly, you'd talk about justification. You would talk about forgiveness. You would talk about salvation. You would talk about all, all those kinds of realities. But when Paul talks about promise in Ephesians and in Galatians and, and really everywhere that he mentions promise, if you, if you look up wherever Paul uses this word, he's almost always talking about the promises that God made to Abraham. In fact, earlier in, in the book of Ephesians, we read that, uh, but now you are partake, you, you were a stranger to the covenants of promise, but now you've been made partakers. You're no longer strangers to those covenants. What, what's he talking He's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. That's where the promises are found. Promises that, that, that I will make you my people, that, that, that I will do what's required, that, that I will make your name great, that I will bless the nations. All of these covenants of promise. Paul's saying you're now partakers of them. To, to make the, the very Presbyterian point, this is, this is why we baptize our children. Because the promises that we partake of are those promises that are very explicitly given to us and our kids. And when we get to Acts chapter 2, he says, the promise is for you and your children and as many as the Lord our God will call. Paul's saying that, that somehow we, who were very much outsiders who were very much alienated, who, who don't have a drop of, of Jewish blood coursing through our veins, that somehow we are partakers of that promise. Now, that shouldn't be entirely surprising that this is the mystery that's now being revealed because even when you go back and read the promises to Abraham, he was going to be the father not of a nation, but of many nations. That was the whole name change. That's what it was all about. He was going to be a blessing not just to Israel, but to the world. And Paul's saying that has now come true. How? It's the last clause of the verse. In Christ Jesus through the gospel. How is it that we're made partakers of those promises that were made so long ago? Because of what Christ has done. Because he died in our place to secure the promises for us. In him, we're made partakers. This is Paul's point if we go back to Galatians chapter 3. The, the other passage that you know at some point I'm going to. For all who rely on works the law are under a... Uh, no, back up. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And we skip down. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, 
so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Paul's writing to the Ephesians now to remind them of the very same thing, that they might not lose heart in the face of the suffering. Because think about the situation. Paul comes to the Gentiles and preaches the gospel and tells them about Jesus and ends up in jail. It's not real hard to imagine Gentiles going, okay, well, maybe Paul was wrong. Maybe this isn't exactly how this was supposed to go. And that's why he's now in jail. Because he crossed some line that he wasn't actually supposed to cross. And Paul's writing to him to say, no, no, no. That's not what's going on at all. So don't be discouraged by my imprisonment. But fix your eyes on Christ. Because in him, through his gospel, you are partakers of the promises that we, the people of God, that that you think of as Israel, that we have clinged to for our entire existence. These promises that we have claimed as our hope, as our security, as our identity in Jesus Christ, they're all now yours because he has secured them for you. Do you see, Christ Church, why there is a basis for us to have hope? It's because all of these promises that we we long to cling to, all of these promises that that we want to hold on to, all of these promises that we want to apply to our children and claim for our children, that they've all been secured, not by what we have done, but by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why we can have hope in the face of suffering. That's why we can claim things for our children. That's why we baptize them. And seal them into Christ with the waters of baptism. Because the Bible says that these promises that have always been for us and our children are now ours in Jesus Christ. This is such a great gospel. It gives us so much hope and so much foundation for life in this broken world. That's why it's a tragedy that when we're faced with this broken world, we start forgetting these promises. Paul continues, if this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Here Paul goes back into the reality of, of how he got where he got. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here he's going back to Ephesians 1 and saying, look, this is what God's plan was from the very beginning. To do this, to unite everyone and everything in Jesus Christ. This was his plan from the beginning of the age. And I am in the blessed position to get to announce that. That's Paul's point here. And I got put in that position, not because I was some high and mighty holy person, Not at all. I was the least of the saints. I was killing Christians. And God came along and said, you're my man. I want you to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I want you to explain the mystery of Gentile inclusion in the promises of Abraham through Jesus Christ. I want you to be the one to do that. You who are working so hard to keep Judaism so pure, Paul. I want you to be the one to go and announce that the dirty Gentiles get in. And so he does. 
But then he tells us this about this message. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the very creation and existence of the church, as this variegated people of God, this, this wildly multicolored people of God, this people of God from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation, this, this people of God that has been made up of those who have been ransomed from other gods, this people of God made up of sinners washed clean by the blood of Christ, this church proclaims something phenomenal to the very powers in the heavenly places. Now, this is not an easy passage to deal with. And if you read 15 commentaries, you're very likely to get 15 different explanations. Because it's just kind of, it's a little bit, I mean, if we're honest, if we're honest, a big part of the problem, it's not the Greek, it's not the, the syntax. If we're honest, a big part of the problem for us Westerners is he starts talking about weird stuff. He starts talking about spiritual powers in the heavenly places. And, and we're just like, you know what? That's not ones and zeros. I'm kind of out on this. And so we don't quite know what to do with it. And so we come up with all different kinds of explanations. And, and anytime you, you face a passage like that, I think the best thing to do is to, to, to ground it back in its closest context and then keep adding layers of context as you go on. And a lot of times that helps us clear up and, and think about what Paul is saying here. So let's do that. In its closest context, Paul is talking about this mystery of Gentile inclusion through Jesus Christ, right? That's what we've been looking at. That the Gentiles, the mysteries, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And that that's who the church is made up of. If we go on a, a broader layer in, in Ephesians, we see that there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. One, right? There's one people of God. That's what Paul is, is really writing about throughout the book of Ephesians. That this church is one body. That, that where there were two people, they have been made one. That that's what the church is. And that somehow this church makes known the manifold wisdom of God to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, so somehow the church that is this wildly mixed group of people from every conceivable background, from every like socioeconomic background, from every ethnic background, from every political background, from every sinning background, from every religious background, that this one people proclaims the manifold wisdom of God. That this was his plan all along. And so if I can stop and make a side point, this is why the stubbornly divided church that we are is such a tragedy. 
Because the unity of all of this, this and, and the word that's used here is, is the multicolored people of God. And, and it's not so much talking about skin color. It's, it's trying to get at the fact that, no, all of these people from all of these different backgrounds are one in Christ Jesus. And that that oneness, that unity of the church proclaims something to someone. The question is, who? Who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Well, again, it's, this is like the weird stuff, right? And so when we like, start hearing weird stuff, we just look for like the lowest common denominator and then make a decision and move on. And so we read this and we're like, oh, it says heaven, right? There's heaven in there, so these are good guys. And that's kind of, I mean, that's like, we don't like to admit that's how simplistically we think about it, but that's how simplistically we think about it. We see heaven as part of one of the words and we're like, okay, so, so these are the good guys, Here's a problem with that. Again, if we keep it in context and we go over to to chapter 6 of of the book of Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, so our, our simplistic hermeneutic of heaven equals good like kind of gets turned on its head just a couple chapters later because all of a sudden we have really good reason to think that these spiritual powers in the heavenly places, it's not like the angels being like, woohoo, we got another one. It, it's, it's something else is going on here. And if we go back to chapter 1, we see that Jesus has been placed far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under... The the same language is used about the dominion of Christ over everything, over all the spiritual powers. So what's going on here? When we read this in the context of Ephesians, here's what I think is happening. Paul is saying that what the church does by being this unified, multicolored, variegated background group of people made one in Jesus Christ, is that we are continually sending letters of transfer to the spiritual powers of darkness, saying, you lost that one, you lost that one, that one's ours, they belong to us now. That's what the church is declaring. See, we think when, when I get the book of church order and come stand down here with somebody and ask these questions like, do you this and do you that? And they say yes at all the right places. We think that that's just kind of some ceremony that the PCA has come up with. And, and kind of it is. But you know what? Churches all over have similar ceremonies that we've come up with. What's happening in those moments is far more, and we forget this because it's weird and we don't like weird. What's happening in those moments is far more than just, oh, this person is now on our roll, so we've got to take care of them and deal with all their stuff. No, what's happening is we're declaring this person right here, Satan, is ours, not yours. They belong to us. More specifically, they belong to Jesus. So back off. That's what the membership ceremony is really about. Yeah, we're all like, hey, they're in, they're us, fellowship, yay. But it's really, in part, the church declaring to these spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places, they're not yours. 
They're not yours. Christ claimed them. And their fellow heirs and their members of the one body and their partakers of the promise. So back off. That's what these ceremonies are about. It's not just this empty formal thing that we do. It's one way that the church declares the manifold wisdom of God that somehow it is his manifold wisdom to call this one his child because of what Jesus did. That's why we bother with membership. That's why we bother with any of this stuff. Because Christ has claimed us as his own And our standing together as the body of Christ declares something fantastic. Not just about us, but about his authority and his power and his dominion over everything. Paul tells us this was according to the eternal purpose. He goes back to Ephesians 1 again. That he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. He's reminding the Gentiles once again, this is what's being declared about you. This is what's being declared about us. This is who it's being declared to. You're with us. And he had a plan for this from the very beginning. And so you don't have sheepish access. You don't have this timid, do I really belong here access. Boldness and confidence. That's the access we have. It's, it's, the, it's the boldness and confidence that a kid has to walk up to the fridge and just start grabbing food when they're at their own house. That's what we have with God. He's ours. We get to just walk in and claim that because of Jesus. And seeing Paul in prison or seeing the suffering in our lives doesn't speak anything more true than these realities of the gospel. That we're partakers of the promise. That we have access that we get to walk right in and sit right down because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the glory of the gospel, that we are included, that we have confidence to come before you through faith in him, that we are partakers of the promise, members of the same body, fellow heirs, that all that you have laid out, All that you have promised has been secured for us in Christ Jesus and nothing, no power in the heavenly place can undo that. No suffering in this life can make it false. Teach us to believe this truth. Amen.